Hi, my name is Joshua Lingle, and uh, I'm the professor for this class. Um, today, uh, in this session, we're going to look at the biography of Muhammad, the life of Muhammad, and we're going to look at the founder of the Islamic faith, Muhammad. It's so important to study about Muhammad's life and to understand it, because for many Muslims, Muhammad is the perfect example for all humanity. His actions and his words set the standard for how pious Muslims are to live. But we must remember that Muslims are incredibly culturally diverse. We cannot assume that they all hold to the same beliefs or practices. The Chinese Muslim will look uh, very differently and act very differently from a Muslim who's a follower in Saudi Arabia. And Muslims from Jordan or Syria will be unique from those Muslims that you may, may, you may meet who are from the countries of Iran or, for example, Pakistan. However, those practices may differ from region to region. It's still very important to have a basic understanding of a kind of Islamic culture, an Islamic religious culture, and the beliefs and how they actually originated and where they actually came from, from the Muslim point of view. So much of the Islamic practices that we see today can be traced back to one source, the Sunnah. The Sunnah is an Arabic word, which means the example of the prophet Muhammad. The Sunnah is drawn from the earliest biography about Muhammad's life called the Sirah. And uh, we'll discuss the Sirah a little bit more uh, in a, in a, uh, later. Also, the Sunnah, or Muhammad's example, can be drawn from stories called the Hadith. And these are found in writings by Muslims after Muhammad's time who explained what he did, what he said, and what he gave his tacit approval to. In our course, our, in our session on uh, Islamic sources, we'll cover all of those materials. In studying the Hadith, you'll be able to understand the ongoing influence of Muhammad in the lives of over a billion people. These stories about Muhammad's life set the foundation for the way a Muslim is to act and to be faithful. The Islamic religion affects every aspect of an individual's life, including the way that they pray, the way that they worship, they fast, the way that they relate to their families, and even in the way they eat. By imitating Muhammad's example, the ultimate and the final prophet of Allah, then a Muslim can ensure that they are living right. And we can understand this because we as Christians are told to imitate Christ. So what do the uh, many Muslims believe about the life of Muhammad? In order to understand uh, Muhammad's life, we need to go back further. We need to look back into the environment in which he was born into. Muhammad was born in Saudi Arabia. Geographically, uh, Saudi Arabia was south of the Roman and Persian empires at that time. The Arabian Peninsula is, uh, is 2,100 kilometers long and 1,200 kilometers wide. So it's very large. And the country had the world's largest desert. Arabia was really a land of desolation. There was very little agricultural activity or farming, and much of Arabia was only fit for nomads or of keeping animals, uh, animal herds or pastoralism. The Arab people were scattered throughout the country, so politically, uh, Ara uh, the Arabian side society was tribal. The people believed that everyone in the nation is equal, but at the same time, there was anarchy because there were many tribes that were there. There's not a central authority to maintain power. 
Rather, each member in that tribe was responsible to sustain the honor of the tribe. They would defend it against the actions that would bring the tribe shame. So there's that honor and shame dynamic that goes on within the Islamic society. As a nomadic tribal society, the Arabs were warlike raiders. They were a nuisance to the surrounding countries and superpowers, but were not a serious military threat. Because they were not a a state-governing, settled society, they were incapable of large-scale military uh, efforts. And this is is important because, as we'll see, that Muhammad later became a unifying figure uh, to uh, a unifying political figure within the society and within the, that country there. So he would later establish this form of statehood in Arabia. Economically, Arabia was involved in trade. Uh, the tribesmen would trade some leathers and clothing, uh, though not much. And it was through this trade that the Arabs came into contact with other languages cultures and religions. And most likely, Muhammad would have been exposed to Christian traders and their Bible stories as they would uh, swap these stories in exchange with uh, trading and goods. As we'll see later in these these stories, uh, these stories will appear within the Quran, Islam's holy book. The Arabs' own religion was really polytheism. (laughs) They worshiped many, many gods. In fact, it's believed that their temple, called the Kaaba, housed 360 idols, uh, one for every day of the year. One goddess named Alat was prominent during the time of Muhammad. And Muslim tradition says that the Kaaba was actually built by Adam. So this is a very old city. This is a very old place. Abraham then helped rebuild the Kaaba, and he brought this very famous black stone that is now in the sanctuary. However, Muslims believe Uh, that after Abraham and before Muhammad, the temple was later defiled into a temple of idolatry. And what I'm describing here is something that's all found uh, within the Muslim interpretation of their religious history. When I quote anything that is from or about Muhammad, I always try and go back to the primary sources uh, from which his life is derived. In the very first biography of Muhammad, which I mentioned before, is called the Sirat Rasulullah of Ibn, Ibn Ishaq, which is the, uh, the biography of the, of the messenger of God from uh, Ibn, Ibn Ishaq, uh, that this is actually here a copy of that biography, which is actually translated uh, into the English language. And so it's a 900-page biography by Oxford Press, and it's uh, The Life of Muhammad, and you can purchase it for about $25. But it's from this book that we actually uh, derives the foundation for the early Syria literature. And so along with Ibn Asak, a man by the name of Al-Waqidi, a man by the name of Al-Tabari, and, uh, who was writing in 923, and Ibn Sayyid, who were the four main Syria writers for the biography of Muhammad. But this was the first one, and he was writing in 767 AD. So that was 135 years after the time Muhammad died. So a long time to wait for history, but it's the first biography and therefore we refer to it for historical reasons. We'll assess it as a, as a source in our, in our talk on the Islamic sources of Islam. They didn't have an intricate mythology or stories surrounding their gods. Unlike Hindus or today, they did not provide their gods with elaborate or expensive housing. 
though most of Arabia was polytheistic, uh, they believed in, in many gods, there was monotheism in the area. Some groups did worship one god. There were certain sects of Christianity called Syrian Monophysites and Persian historians who were predominant neighbors of Arabia. Now, Monophysites believed that Christ had only one divine nature. Christians today who believe in the Orthodox Orthodox teachings of the Bible agree that Christ actually has two natures. He is one person who is fully human and fully God. But the Nestorians, who also lived near Arabia, believed that Christ was not one person with two natures, but he was actually split into two people. One person that is a physical man and one person that is a spiritual and divine one. So we see Monophysite and Nestorian theology about Jesus in Muhammad's teachings, which shows us in the Quran that it was influenced by these groups. So there was also an older Jewish presence in Western Arabia. Islamic tradition uh, describes substantial Jewish populations in the area where Muhammad was from, the Hijaz. Uh, the Hijaz is Western uh, Arabia between the aspects of where Mecca was and where Medina is. Though there were Christians and Jewish influences, paganism is said to have prevailed throughout Arabia. In fact, the Islamic writings define the religious environment before Muhammad as Jahiliya. Jahiliya usually means a time of religious ignorance and idolatry. This is where people were barbaric. They were worshiping many gods. They were living in great spiritual darkness. And so it was into this desert environment of tribal warfare and paganism that Muhammad was born in 570 AD. There are two periods in Muhammad's life called the Meccan and Medinan periods. These two periods have to do with the earlier and the later parts of his 23-year prophetic career. The Meccan is characterized as a time of peace, and the Medinan is a time of war. Now, Muhammad's early life was spent in Mecca. No one quite knows uh, the day that he was born. There is a, a... uh, a calendar each year where they'll, they'll, they'll say he was born, but no one's quite sure. Uh, Islamic tradition explains that uh, there were miracles which were surrounding Muhammad's birth. Uh, for example, when Muhammad's mother was giving birth to him, there was a light that was cast from him, and the light was so bright that she could see all the way the castles in Basra and in Syria, which is actually hundreds and hundreds of miles away. So this is a very, very important person that's being born. It's strange that, uh, that this could occur because Mecca is actually in the valley surrounded by the mountains of the Hira. And so I don't, I'm not sure exactly how you could actually see over mountains in order to see the castles of Basra and Syria, but it was a very uh, impressive miracle. When Muhammad was born, there was also a Jew who told other Jews, he says, quote, Today a star has risen under which Ahmed, the praised one, Muhammad, was born in Sahih ibn Ibrahim. Some traditions explain that the arrival of Muhammad brought blessings or to the tribal land and, and it brought water from a, for a great drought through rains and so on. There were also prophecies about his prophethood. There were prophecies from Arab soothsayers, Jews and Christians, who all recognized that he would one day be a prophet. 
For example, as a child, Muhammad traveled to Syria with his uncle Abu Talib. Uh, while he was there, a Christian monk, uh, Bahira and others, recognized him as a future prophet and warned that he must be protected from the Jews. Muhammad's father, Ab Abdullah, uh, died around the time of his birth, about three months is usually what they say, and uh, there's varying reports on that. But his mother, Amina, died when he was six years old. So Muhammad was really an orphan child. At a very young age, he was then taken in by his uncle, uh, uncle Abu Talib, and it's believed that Muhammad grew to be an illiterate man. As a young man, Muhammad was hired by a wealthy widow by the name of Khadija, and he became a trader uh, for her, working for her up into, the, up into Syria. And at the age of 25, Muhammad went through an extreme change when he married Khadija, who was 40 years old, and uh, uh, it was a, a very happy marriage. Uh, she was 15 years his elder, and uh, at this early stage, he was a marginal figure that owed his success to his older and richer wife. Now, Muhammad was a religious man, and he would spend one month each year on a mountain called Hira, and this seemed to be a, a, re a religious custom of pagan times. But sometime around 610 AD, at the age of 40 years old, Muhammad was on another trip to the Hira, and one night he began to have these visions, and the angel Gabriel, Gabriel came to him and appeared to him, commanding him to recite. And the angel would, would say to him, exclaim to him, Ikra, recite in the name of thy Lord. Ikra, recite in the name of thy Lord. Read in the name of thy Lord. And so Muhammad was asked to recite the Quran after the third time, and in the first uh, vision Muhammad received, the 96th chapter, verses 1 through 6 of the Quran from Gabriel. And this was the first of many apparent visions and revelations that Muhammad would have. From that point forward, uh, Gabriel was to be the channel of communication between Allah and Muhammad, and the angel Gabriel would recite words to Muhammad in fragments, and these utterances would then become the revealed Quran. Muhammad was disturbed by these experiences, and whenever Gabriel would appear to him, he would go into protracted fits, uh, periods and fits of rage. He'd foam at the mouth. He'd break out in perspiration. Muhammad himself, according to the biography, thought he was demon-possessed. Others thought perhaps he was epileptic throughout history, but his wife Khadija encouraged him that this was from Allah and from God, and the tradition goes like this, and this is how she knew it was from Allah. Khadijah asked him, Muhammad, if he could tell her when Gabriel appeared to him, and he said that he would. So when Gabriel came to, uh, to him, Muhammad went and told Khadijah, and this is uh, the Gabriel who had just come to me, and she told him then to get up and sit on her left leg, and so he would go and sit on uh, his left leg, and uh, she'd say, can you see him? And he says, yes. And he said, she t then told him, then run around on my right leg. And he did so. And she said, can you still see the angel? And so she told him yes. And he's sitting on, uh, sitting on her lap. And, uh, and then uh, she uh, ended up disrobing and asking her, Muhammad, can you actually see him? And he said yes. So Khadijah replied, 
uh, rejoice, uh, said, rejoice, for by God, Gabriel is an angel and not a Satan. So this is a little ritual which actually proved to Khadijah that Muhammad was really seeing a heavenly visitor. Now, the Sirah or biography of Muhammad uh, reports that a local Christian perceived uh, Muhammad's experience is similar to that of Moses and to that of Abraham's. And because of this, the Sirah, the biography says, that he must then be the prophet of his people. And of course, we have no examples from the Bible of Abraham or Moses foaming at the mouth, perspiration, falling down, and so on. But in 610 AD, in the age of, at the age of 40 uh, years old, Muhammad became, became a prophet to his Arab followers. His family members were the first to accept his new religion. Uh, Khadijah, his wife, of course, was the first then, uh, his nephew Ali. Also, it was reported that a slave named Zayed believed, and Muhammad kept silent about the Islamic religion for three years. And, but then Allah, the Islamic God, uh, commanded Muhammad to make it public. He spent about 12 years in Mecca, and during that time, he would have episodic revelations that continued with the angel Gabriel visiting him and revealing parts of the Quran. And the religion produced a rather simple morality. Now, as I mentioned Muhammad's life, it serves as the perfect example for all Muslims. And here are some uh, general practices uh, of Muhammad that Muslims follow. One, one tradition says that when Muhammad would get ready, he would, according to Sahih al-Bukhari, uh, found in volume 1 in Akbar uh, 117, he would uh, like to start from the right side, and then wearing his shoes, he would uh, comb his hair and cleaning or washing himself and then doing anything else. So as a result, many Muslims prefer the right side of the body over the left side of the body. For example, in Morocco, the right hand is not used to cleanse oneself after using the toilet, but the left hand is. And for this reason, left-handed people are almost never found in traditional Muslim societies. If a child shows the tendency to use the left hand, then they'll be immediately trained to use the right hand only for writing and giving or receiving items. So it's important to note that a handshake must always be done with the right hand and not the left. Secondly, there's almost a spiritual relationship to being a good Muslim and washing the body. Muhammad refer, would refer to uh, would prefer to clean himself with water, but in the desert where he came from, the, uh, where he came from, uh, it was impossible, and so he would use stones or sand. The cleansing of the body must be done before each prayer, and practically this means that devout Muslims washes uh, their head, uh, their arms, their hands, their feet five times a day. Also, in some homes, they won't place a toilet in the house that actually has the backside of a person uh, that faces Mecca. Third, followers of Muhammad were told they must pray five times a day, though modern Muslims dispute what the actual number is. And fourth, likewise, as with the cleaning, Muhammad set an example to eat only with the right hand, and this is normal uh, actions for many Muslims. Uh, the word halal is an important word in the Muslim community. You, you find it often when you go to restaurants. It indicates that an animal 
has been properly and lawfully butchered according to Islamic uh, standards and is thus declared clean. The process is as follows. First, Allah's name are invoked at the moment of, sli- of, of slitting the throat of the animal and blood is completely expelled from the animal. If these two conditions are not met, then the meat is actually haram or unclean. Foods that are uh, forbidden for Muslims include pork, uh, wine, and so on. So these are very simple rituals. Uh, Muhammad set the example of how to live, so a devout Muslim will follow that example he set forth in the life and in his teachings. Now back to Mecca. It was uh, while this simple religion was forming that Muhammad had what is called his night journey to Jerusalem. And there he met with Abraham, and he met with Moses, and Jesus, and basically this is how it goes, uh, the story goes. One night Muhammad was awoken by Gabriel, and the angel Gabriel uh, took him outside. There he saw an animal that was a half mule and a half donkey, and uh, with uh, wings on it, and this, wing, this winged horse was actually called the Brock. And uh, the Brock, a winged horse, so Muhammad and Gabriel Uh, got on this horse, and flying on the Barak, uh, from Mecca to Jerusalem, uh, they they went. When he arrives in Jerusalem, he actually meets with Abraham and Moses as they're climbing up a ladder, uh, and leads these uh, prophets in Muslim uh, Islamic prayer. And because of this meeting, Muhammad knows what the prophets actually look like. Abraham looks just like himself, like Muhammad. Moses was tall, he was thin, and he actually had a hooked nose. Jesus was a reddish man of medium height with wet-looking hair with many freckles on his face. So after Muhammad spends time in Jerusalem with his prophet friends, a ladder was uh, brought to him, and Gabriel mounted it for him, and he climbs up to the seven heavens. And the idea of a seven heavens Uh, actually comes from an ancient Persian religion called Zoroastrian at the time of Muhammad. And uh, in the first heaven, uh, he met Adam, who was judging the spirits of dead men as they came up to heaven. In the second heaven, he met with Jesus and John the Baptist. In the third heaven, Muhammad met with Joseph, Yusuf. And in the fourth heaven, he met with a Muslim prophet called Idris. In the fifth heaven, it was Aaron, Moses' brother. In the sixth heaven, it w- he, he met with Moses. And in the seventh heaven, it was Abraham. There, Muhammad was told to pray 50 times a day. But when he passed the news on to Moses uh, on his way back down, Moses said that 50 times a day was way too much. Told Muhammad to go back up and ask that it would be reduced. And so he did that. And they were reduced down from uh, 40 prayers a day down, uh, it was too much, and, and he reduced, uh, talked to Moses, and they reduced it down again, and 30 prayers a day, and that was too much. And so they went and told, Moses told Muhammad to go back and talk to Allah again, always through the angel Gabriel. And they negotiated it finally down to five times per day. And that's actually how Muslims, uh, uh, Sunni Muslims, get their tradition about praying five times a day for Muslims. So this story is interesting because traditionally most Muslims you speak with say that Muhammad's only miracle and proof of prophethood was the Quran. And the reason it's his miracle is because Muhammad was illiterate. 
But the Islamic tradition tells us that there were many more miracles, lots of miracles validating Muhammad's uh, prophethood than just the Quran, if you go through this book. For example, two angels took his, his heart out of his chest, and then they took a black clot out of his heart, and it was made clean. That's a pretty good miracle. There's uh, many variances on this miracle of the opening of Muhammad's chest in an article you can find by Burkhoff. Uh, but one Islamic tradition says it happened when Muhammad was two years old, according to Ibn Ishaq. Uh, other traditions say that it was when Muhammad was four years old, according to Ibn Sayyid, another early Muslim writer. And another says that Muhammad's chest was opened and his heart was purified of sin at six years old. Uh, also, we're told it happened at eight years old. At, and then we're told in another tradition it happened in 10 years old by uh, Ahmed and Ibn Asakir. Uh, another tradition says the angels opened Muhammad's chest four times to cleanse his heart. Another miracle is that there was once a calf who was being sacrificed to an idol. And as this calf was being sacrificed and he was being cut open, Muhammad's friend Omar heard a prophecy concerning Muhammad coming out of the calf. And the voice from the calf spoke about Muhammad, and the tradition says that the, what they hear from the calf as it's being cut open is, there's no God but Allah. So that's a pretty good miracle. Um, the monk Bahira saw the bows of a tree actually uh, bend low and shade Muhammad with the branches as a young man, according to Abdullah ibn Abu Bakr. Uh, trees in, in the biography actually greet Muhammad at his command. One of them actually uh, comes over to him and walks over to him. Uh, in the, the enemies of Muhammad are unable to harm him in any way. For example, one enemy named Abu Jal, who's mentioned as the great enemy of the Muslims in the Quran, who tried to stone Muhammad, and just as he's about to stone him, his hand withers away, according to Ibn Abbas. So that's a pretty good miracle. Uh, his enemies uh, die of diseases. All Muhammad had to do was to point to different parts of their body, and they would be able to break out in diseases, according to Yazid ibn Rahman. He has power over an inanimate nature when a staff he takes and is transformed into a sword. So clearly, Muhammad is doing different kinds of miracles. And finally, Muhammad had a little piece of gold on his tongue, which weighed enough to ransom a kidnapped follower. Actually, two more miracles. Uh, Muhammad uh, heals a man's eye, and the eye had become so injured that it lay exposed on his cheek. And so, uh, likewise, Muhammad causes water to flow, from a rock. So there are lots of miracles that are being done. These last two miracles actually resonate with the Christian audience. It also shows that Muhammad's biographers have been concerned with making Muhammad look very similar to Jesus and to Moses, healing in the eye and also uh, striking a rock or something like that and having water flow out of it. Though many Muslims don't know about these miracles documented in the traditional Islamic writings, like the Sirah bi biography that you can read yourself, they do believe that Muhammad had problems in Mecca. The reaction of the pagan Meccans to his new, this new religious leader was initially tolerant. Those who 
did not follow Muhammad were later offended by him and opposed him because of his teaching against the local pagan idols. Uh, Muhammad uh, temporarily allowed, or was, he was tempted and allowed these gods into his religion, but later he reverted back to the message of a strict monotheism and did, didn't allow these, uh, these three deities to exist within his religion. When this happened, his followers in the pagans, Meccans, they clashed in hostility and it caused a real problem for the Muslims. So you can see uh, from, uh, uh, from his career, Muhammad's career, uh, you can see uh, his, his life uh, against the background of tribal uh, politics in a stateless society. In Muhammad's time, Mecca had no centralized authority. It was comprised of family groups whose relationships could easily degenerate into war. And the new religion of Muhammad reflects these divisions. His tribe was made up of the Hashim's descendants, which were the strongest supporters of Muhammad. He enjoyed the support of his own group because of his uncle Abu Talib, who adopted him, and he got the tribe to support him. But when Abu Talib died, opposition to Muhammad increased. The weakest of Muhammad's supporters uh, were his rivals, the Banu Abshams tribe. And in a tribal society, an individual is actually protected by his tribe. When people began to convert to Islam and began following Muhammad, they began to question who were going to be the people that now are going to protect them. And if they weren't from Muhammad's family, but were following Muhammad, uh, their families, tribes would not protect them. So that left a real problem. And Muhammad began to seek support outside of his city, Mecca, and other towns. He would uh, travel to Ferris, proclaiming his prophethood to the people who would listen. And there he would uh, tell others about his new religion. And as he visited his neighboring towns, he'd get some support. But when he visited the town of Taif, it was a disaster, and he was rejected outright. Where Muhammad did find support was in a city called Medina. And before Islam came to the city, it was called Yathrib. Unlike Mecca, Medina was rich and had a, a, a waters and had trees and, and, and an oasis there. Uh, there was an ancient Jewish population of tribesmen who lived along the, alongside the Arab tribes in that city called the Az and the Khazraj. And it was the Arab tribes who dominated the city. Like Mecca, Medina had no central authority, but unlike Mecca, it had a lot more recurring fighting between the tribes. And these features gave Muhammad a way to kind of work with the tribes to spread his newfound religion. Muhammad traveled to Medina, and at a fair, he actually met with a small group of the Khazraj Arab tribe, and they accepted his religious message because, one, they, they had close relations with the Jews, who would speak of a coming prophet to come. And of course, they're most likely speaking about the coming Messiah that was present within uh, Judaism, uh, that, that, that tradition was present within Judaism. But these Arabs considered that perhaps Muhammad was the prophet the Jews spoke of. And secondly, these Arabs were also attracted to Muhammad because they saw it as a way to unite the people in Medina, these three tribes. This, again, is all written in the Sirah of Muhammad, the biography of Muhammad, the oldest biography that exists. 
Later, Muhammad met with a larger representative group from Medina, and after meeting with him, they pledged that they would protect Muhammad. Uh, this included fighting in his own tribe if they opposed him. After uh, finding the support he needed, Muhammad ordered his followers to leave Mecca and migrate north to Medina. And this took place in 622 AD, and it's called the Hijra. And the Hijra is very important for Muslims because all of their, uh, their early calendars start with this year of 622 AD. Those Meccan followers of Muhammad who agreed to move to Medina were called the al Mahajarun or the immigrants. And today there's a radical Islamist group uh, in London which is called the al Mahajarun Party. Uh, and that's actually where they get their name, the immigrants who migrate with the prophet and then fight in the way of God. The local followers of Muhammad in Medina were called the Al-Ansar, and there are radical Islamist groups in Asia called the Ansar, or the Helpers. So both the Meccan and Medinan followers were called Muslims. And from the time of the Prophet on, Medina is known as the city of the Prophet. Muhammad lived there from 622 AD until his death in 632 AD. One scholar says that it was in Medina that Muhammad was uh, not only a prophet receiving revelations from, from Allah, but there, it's there where they had the beginning of the Islamic state, the Khilafah. That's where they obtained political power, and that is where he was able to glean control over the populace and bring the tribes together under the Ummah. Muhammad's first task in Medina was to establish a political order to give him and his followers the protection that they needed, and he aimed to rid Medina of all the fighting between the tribes. So Muhammad created the Constitution of Medina. The Constitution declares the existence of the community of Muhammad's followers, and this community is called the Ummah. The Jewish tribes were allowed to belong to the community at first, but later that was, uh, they were rejected. The Constitution created a central authority and remember, there was no centralized authority because of the tribes. So now the disputes or problems would have to be resolved by Allah and Muhammad. So essentially, Muhammad made himself the central political authority of this community. Since if you want to know what Allah said, you have to talk to Muhammad. And if you want to see what you're supposed to do with your life, you have to follow the Sunnah, which is Muhammad. So uh, that's basically, he becomes the center of the whole religion. There are two important themes in the Constitution. The first is a concern to clarify the relationship between the Islamic community and the existing tribal structures. And the second major interest of the parties in the document is the waging of war. The cost of war is discussed, the initiation and the termination of hostilities, and that the Jewish will fight along the Mus alongside the Muslims if they go into battle. Though a constitution was created, the community was far from uh, unified with all the tribes in Medina. As the Ummah, the Muslim community, consolidated, they became very violent with the Midianese uh, Jewish tribes, and these Jews rejected Muhammad's message, and the Islamic tradition says that it was because they were jealous. The Jews were jealous because... Uh, God, Allah, had chose his latest prophet from amongst the Arabs and not the Jews. 
in the second year of the Hijra, conflict broke out between the, the Banu Kainuka tribe who were expelled from Medina by the Muslims. And in the fifth year of the Hijra, the Banu Kainuka sided with Muhammad's enemies outside of Medina, attacking him in Medina. The outcome was the mass execution of men and enslavement of women and children. And from then on, the Jews had no part in the political structure uh, uh, or the polity, uh, though some converts remained as Muslims. In our next session, we're going to continue on, and we're going to cover the war that begins to break out amongst the Muslim communities. Thank you very much.